It's that time again, punk rockers. Time for us to take another dive into the wonderful world of punk. On today's episode, we'll be going way back to the late 70s again when punk really started to hit the mainstream. So, whether you're the king rocker or one of the 100 punks, you'd better get ready, steady, go for your generation. That's right, everybody. On today's episode of Let's Talk Punk Rock, we're doing Generation X. Now, I heard my first Generation X song while I was in high school. I had an idea to get a song recommendation from each of my friends and make a compilation CD of those songs. A friend of mine suggested 100 Punks by Generation X. I had never even heard of this band up to that point, but was so pulled in by it that it ended up being my favorite song on that CD. I was even more excited when I heard Kiss Me Deadly at the end of the SLC Punk film. Personally, I find it an odd choice for that scene, but the song is killer either way. Okay, enough about me, on with the show. Alright, our story today starts in the mid-70s with a young Billy Idol, real name William Broad, being a member of what is now known as the Bromley Contingent. This was a group of punk rockers living in Bromley who were massive fans of the Sex Pistols. Another notable person among them is Billy Idol's friend Susan Ballion, better known today as Susie Sue of Susie and the Banshees. Wanting to have a band of his own, he responds to an ad that he sees in The Melody Maker. This ad had been placed by John Cravine, who was the owner of Acne Attractions, a clothing store on the King's Road. Cravine wasn't looking to be in a band, but to form one around a man going by the name Gene October. Idle responds to this ad as a guitarist, along with his friend John Toe on drums and Tony James on bass. He had also met Tony James through an ad in The Melody Maker. At this point, Idol is a 21-year-old college dropout. James is a graduate who used his first college grant to purchase a guitar. He had also played in a band called London SS with Mick Jones before Jones had been part of The Clash. The only recording of London SS comes from a demo they had recorded. Cravine chooses Idol over the other guitarist who auditioned because he has the right punk attitude. Now that they have a band formed, they settle on the name Chelsea. Bear with me here, Generation X is coming. They mostly just do covers of rock and roll songs from the 60s. At one point, Idol plans to dye his hair black with blue in it, but his girlfriend forgets the dye and doesn't realize it until after they've already bleached his hair. He is now left with peroxide blonde hair. The look eventually becomes iconic for the rock star, but at the time, Gene October hates him for doing this. This, along with it being a good contrast to his black guitar, leads Idol to keep the look. They play their first gig at a place called Chelsea Potter Pub. It doesn't take long for this band to start having issues. Gene October feels that Idol and James are being too dominant in the band. He feels that the chemistry just doesn't meld well, and the others agree. Now, Billy Idol and Tony James are phenomenal at writing songs together. Usually, James would write lyrics, and Idol would come up with the music to go along with it. After writing the song Youth, 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 they realize that these songs are really being written for Idol to sing and not October. October being in his 30s already. One night on stage, playing as Chelsea, they decide to drop October from the band mid-set. They go out and play some of their own songs that Gene October didn't even know they had written. This is Generation X's introduction to the world. 
The name Generation X came from a book that Billy Idol's mother had. The book was called Generation X, and Tony James had noticed it, thinking it would be a good band name. This book, written by Jane Deverson and Charles Hamblett in 1965, focuses on battles between mods and rockers in the 1960s. After they've given their band a name, they write Your Generation. Starting out, they get Andrew Chazowski to manage the group. Chazowski is the accountant for Malcolm McLaren, who is probably best known for managing the Sex Pistols. Idol drops guitar and focuses on vocals only. While at a party, Idol is watching a band called Paradox perform. Recognizing the talent in the 17-year-old guitar player, he invites Bob Derwood Andrews to join the band. Calling Tony James up from a payphone and telling him they had their guitarist, but he would need to get a haircut as he had long hair at the time. After agreeing to join the band, Idol gives Derwood his guitar. With the name, their own songs, a new guitarist, and a style of their own made up of painted and stenciled shirts of their own design, Generation X is ready to play their first prepared-for show at the Central School of Art and Design on December 10, 1976. Their next show will be at the Roxy four days later. They are one of the first bands to play there, with an early Susie and the Banshees opening for them, and the Slaughter and the Dogs opening the next night. Now, the Roxy is an important place to UK punk history, as it was a club set up with punk music partially in mind. This is because it is managed by Generation X's own manager, Andrew Chazowski. Because of this, the Roxy would double as a rehearsal space for the band. They even helped put in the stage and attempted to decorate it in a punk style. It was finally a place with punks hanging out in mind, and Generation X would be the house band there for months. After their December 14th opening, they had an even bigger opening planned for New Year's Eve. The Clash agreed to play with the Heartbreakers, and Generation X would be the support band. Now they were starting to make a name for themselves, and that caught the eye of record labels who began contacting them about deals. After reading books about other bands and talking to Malcolm McLaren, Sex Pistols manager, Bernard Rhodes, Clash Manager, and Neil Aspinall, Accountant at Apple, they decided to pass on these offers. They didn't want to sign on to the first label to look their way and get screwed over on a deal. All these people told them to hold out for the best deal and that if they were actually any good, a better deal would present itself. They could see that these offers were just labels trying to cash in on the rise of punk rock music and wouldn't really be doing much to help them succeed. From here, Chazowski decides he wants to focus more on managing the Roxy and steps down as band manager. The band then goes into a dual manager position with Stuart Joseph and John Ingham. Both of these men brought something to the table. Stuart Joseph was a fanzine promoter from Rough Trade Records and was brought in to handle the money, despite being broke and living in his car at the time. John Ingham was a journalist from Sounds and would approach record companies to try and get a deal for the band. On February 16, 1977, 
The band gets in a recording studio for the first time to record a demo at Chiswick Records. They release their first record themselves. Side A has Your Generation, and Side B is Listen. We've already heard a clip from Your Generation, so here's a clip from Listen. Packaged in a plain white label for promotion, the band originally has 250 of these printed, which sell out fast, and so they have another 500 made. They had been made to have a pirated look, and the band would claim to have had nothing to do with it. Around this time, Billy Idol and Tony James happened to get the clap from the same girl. Because of this, they had to be medicated and couldn't drink for a couple weeks. They headed to a pub to do an interview with NME and ordered a couple orange juices. This prompted NME to run the headline, The Terror of the Orange Juice Punks. Not the kind of image these guys were hoping for. A month after the demo recording at Chiswick Records, the band plays a show at University of Leicester on March 11th. This show has to be cut short, though, when Derwood Andrews is struck in the head with a wine glass or a beer bottle, depending on the source of the story. The projectile is thrown from the crowd as Generation X is playing Ready, Steady, Go. To Derwood's credit, he continued to play this song as he collapsed on the stage. The following month, in April, the band plays their first international gig in Paris with The Jam and The Police. James and Idol ask John Toe to leave the band because his drumming and personality just don't fit with what they're going for. Toe moves on to join a band called Alternative TV, and Mark Laff is brought in as drummer the following month. Laugh had previously played in Subway Sect and has what Generation X are looking for. An interesting style has him holding his drumsticks backwards like baseball bats to get a louder sound out of the drums. With their new drummer, Generation X begins practicing in the basement of Beggar's Banquet Record Shop in Fulham Road from June to August of that year. Mid-July, they agree to sign with Chrysalis Records and go to record their first commercial album at Wessex Sound Studios in North London. Chrysalis seemed to fit what Generation X was wanting in a label. For starters, they wanted an indie label after seeing the troubles that came from the Sex Pistols and EMI. They also liked that it was a British label with ties to the United States. Still nervous about a label screwing them over, they had a lawyer look over the contract as well as Billy Idol's accountant father before signing. This helped mend the fence between Idol and his father some after he had dropped out of college to pursue a career in music. Once in the studio, their original producer was Bill Price, but the band wasn't happy with the results they were getting and Price was switched out for Phil Wayneman. Wanting to be different and not another Sex Pistols knockoff, they wrote From the Heart. This song, which was usually an opener at live shows, talks about personal emotions with love and being young, optimistic, and idealistic. Really used to me, so nasty. Why? Isn't it the truth you wanna hear? I'm a gypsy from the heart. I can tell the whole lies from the heart. 
They get their first single, Your Generation, recorded in July with Wayneman at Morgan Studios in Wilsden. Wayneman isn't all that impressed with the band. September 1st, 1977, they release Your Generation with Day by Day as the B-side. It reaches 36 on the UK singles charts and even gets a review from Elton John in Record Mirror. Unfortunately, Elton John calls it dreadful garbage and hideously recorded, so not a great start. Stepping further into the limelight, Generation X performs on Mark, a television show hosted by Mark Bolin of T-Rex. Their equipment doesn't show up for the recording like it's supposed to and the manager wants to pull them because they've got David Bowie coming. Bolin, being a stand-up guy, refuses to do the show unless they can make it work for the band. He even goes so far as to offer his own guitar equipment to help out. The rest of the equipment is borrowed from Eddie and the Hot Rods. I can't verify this next part, but I did find one source that stated they borrowed equipment from the producers, Granada, and then went on to steal the drum kit, causing them to be banned for the next 10 years. Not sure if this is true or not, but it's a fun story. Sadly, this show is recorded just one week before Mark Boland dies in a car crash. Along with performing on Mark, Generation X becomes one of the first punk bands to perform on Top of the Pops that same month. This only exacerbates things for the band with the local underground punk scene, though. They are criticized and accused of using punk as a stepping stone into the pop world. This goes on to say that they don't truly fit into the punk scene at all. After seeing some graffiti during a photo shoot in November of 1977, the band is inspired to write the song Wild Youth. This is the only Generation X single that doesn't even make it into the UK singles charts. This is also around the time that Wayneman mentions to Billy Idol that he should take his talent and go solo. Idol says no way, but the seed is now planted in his mind. By the end of 1977, John Ingham steps down as manager, leaving Stuart Joseph entirely in charge as the band manager. Ingham hadn't been getting along with Tony James and was wanting to bring in a session drummer for the recordings. James said no and that it had to be laugh. They finish out the year playing New Year's Eve at the Rainbow in central London with the Ramones who were doing their Rocket to Russia tour. What an amazing way to bring in the new year. February 7th, 1978, another single is released. This time it is Ready Steady Go, a song about the music show of the same name. It also references other rock icons of the time and similar shows.
B-side to this single is No No No, with the cover of the album being taken directly from one of Billy Idol's self-made shirts. March 17th of that same year, they released their first full-length album. The album, Generation X, goes to number 29 in the UK album charts. Interestingly, this album has a slightly different track list for the US and UK releases, which can be fun for any fellow vinyl collectors out there. For example, the UK release starts off with From the Heart, which is track 3 on the US release. The US release starts off with a cover of John Lennon's Gimme Some Truth, which doesn't even appear on the UK release. Idol had been a fan of John Lennon and how he tended to do things his own way. Generation X takes this song and speeds it up slightly with their punk attitude added in for good measure. This album is produced by Martin Russian. Wayneman has stepped down at this point. He never really understood what punk was all about. He also never liked Mark Laugh's drumming. It's even suspected that after everyone went home from recording one day, Wayneman re-recorded the drums for Ready Steady Go without telling the band. A bright side to this change in producers is that Russian wasn't nearly as strict as Wayneman, and that put everyone at ease while recording. They were liking the idea of writing songs that told narratives like Springsteen had done. Tony James already had lyrics written for the song Kiss Me Deadly, and they decided to work with that. It was a song about two punks dealing with the violence and troubles in the world during the late 70s. They chose to have the song build instead of being a standard three-chord punk song. Cause spotlights pick the kids in triumph with a thousand scars in Another narrative song they had on here, and the first Generation X song I ever heard, was 100 Punks. The story for this song came from a sort of viral marketing idea the band had. They figured if they could get 100 fans to form some sort of phone tree, it would help get the word out whenever they had a gig or any news. They would call them the 100 Punks, and this was their song about them. They supposedly got the idea of the phone tree from The Who doing something similar, and I assume more successfully. In the spring of 1978, Chrysalis Records sends Billy Idol to the United States to do some promotion for the album. They couldn't send the rest of the band due to a lower budget at the time. 
While in New York, Idol meets Blondie, Patti Smith, and the Cramps. He then flies out to L.A., where he meets Joan Jett and Darby Crash. These are all heroes of his. He says in his autobiography that L.A. somehow felt like it was moving a lot slower than New York or London at the time. Later that year in October, the band is back in the studio again. This time, they are recording their album Valley of the Dolls with Ian Hunter as the producer. Tony James was a fan of Hunter and had chosen him specifically to produce. James already had lyrics written for a lot of songs on this album, but Idol wasn't feeling it this time. He felt that the songs just weren't punk enough, but he went along with it in part due to the success they had had with Kiss Me Deadly. The finishing track for side one of this album is King Rocker, which is about the band's love of rock and roll. Amusingly, it's also about a fictitious fight between Elvis Presley and the Beatles. Following King Rocker, the first track on side two of the album was Valley of the Dolls. Now, at this time, not many ladies were coming to punk gigs, and probably for good reason. Valley of the Dolls was for all of the females who did come, though, and the energy they brought with them. By the time the album is finished, Idol is not thrilled with it. Derwood Andrews also has similar complaints. They both say it isn't fast enough. It isn't punk enough for what they want and that it's boring. Tony James blames his Springsteen influences in this album on Mick Jones of The Clash. Tony James was living with Jones at the time and he says that Jones was playing a lot of Springsteen. Idol really sticks to his tough punk image during one show on December 1st of this year. They are playing a gig at Birmingham's Aston University. The Hells Angels decided to invite themselves to run security for the show. During the show, one of these guys climbs up on stage, walks right past actual security, and proceeds to punch Billy Idol straight in the face, knocking him into the drum kit. In true Billy Idol fashion, he got up, dusted himself off, and continued the set. After the show, another of the bikers there explains that the guy must like the band because Idol was the only one he punched, and he usually chains people he doesn't like. In a way, I guess you could call that the silver lining of the event. January of 1979, Valley of the Dolls is released. Generation X is informed by Chrysalis Records that if the single King Rocker is not a success, they are going to drop the band. Despite a young Billy Idol claiming in interviews that they were the best band Chrysalis had ever had, they had not made the label as much money as they had hoped. King Rocker makes it to number 11 on the UK singles charts. The album itself only makes it to number 51 in the album charts. It is met with negative reviews and is described as artistically hollow. 
By now, all of the members of the band are beginning to have issues with one another. Tony James begins to have major anxiety issues, and Billy Idol has to take over the majority of songwriting and press duties because of it. They decide to rent a house in the country to write songs, but this displeases Idol even more. He's a fan of the city. He says in his autobiography that they wrote some really bad songs there that should never have been released, but the contract they had signed gave the label the rights to use them whenever they wanted. Friendship between Derwood Andrews and Billy Idol also becomes strained. Andrews wants to focus on writing more indie-type songs, but is shut out of the creative side of things. Andrews is also taking issue with Idol's persona that he has been creating. He feels that it is too soloist. How right he would be. By this point, Andrews decides he wants to quit the band. They convince him to go on tour with them in Japan before throwing in the towel, though. While touring Japan, they see kids at a disco dancing. Idol recalls seeing one kid dancing in front of a mirror and mentioning that he's dancing with himself. Tony James points out that that could be a good song title, and Dancing With Myself is written when they get back from tour. The song is about a lonely dancer looking for a partner. Listen to the lyrics as he describes the loneliness of being at a crowded club with nobody. On top of struggles within members of the band, they begin to have problems with their manager, Stuart Joseph. They decide to fire him. He responds to this with a lawsuit preventing them from playing under the name Generation X. This lawsuit lasts for over six months, and they continue to play, sometimes under the name Wild Youth instead. Needing a new manager, it's Tony James who suggests they get Bill Coin to manage them. Coin had been a manager for Kiss as well, and Chrysalis was able to make this happen for them. A coin knew what he was doing and was able to strike a deal where the band would be getting a weekly wage even while the lawsuit was going on. On November 30th, 1979, Generation X played their last show at the Jamaican Club in Gloucester. Andrews quits the band as he had said he would do after the Japan tour. A few weeks later, Mark Laff is asked to leave the band after a dispute over songwriting credits. Laff and Andrews go on to start their own band called Empire, but it isn't a success. By now, Idol has started doing heroin, which will be an addiction for many years. He first tries the drug on accident, believing it to be cocaine. Idol says this is done with Phil Linnett of Thin Lizzy, where they do lines of coke and heroin all night between taking turns vomiting into a trash can. Understandably, he doesn't touch the stuff for weeks after that. A new character comes into the story here that will become a major part of Billy Idol's life. Perry Lister is a dancer with a group called Hot Gossip. The way Idol tells it, it was practically love at first sight with Lister. Unfortunately, through a friend of Lister, Idol now has access to a lot of drugs, including heroin. Lister stays in the story beyond Generation X, having a nine-year relationship with Idol and being mother to one of his two children. Things at this point continue to get worse for the band. Tony James's anxiety is going through the roof. 
It has gotten so bad by now that he is prescribed Valium and told to meditate and exercise. This causes him to take up jogging. They replace Laugh with Terry Chimes. Chimes was the original drummer of The Clash. With a new lineup, they shorten their name to Gen X. On the side, Bill Coyne has more interest in getting Idol to go solo in the United States than he does with the band and continues to push in that direction. 1980 came and the band is back to recording another album. Thanks to the failure of Valley of the Dolls, Chrysalis doesn't want to fund another Gen X album. They ultimately decide that they will after talks with Idol about possibly doing a solo career beyond the band. Idol had to convince Chrysalis Records that Dancing With Myself would be a hit. They agreed to go for it, thinking that if nothing else, it would be a good jumping off point for a solo career. Idol tells a coin that they need a producer who can do rock and roll and also groove type music for this album. A coin contacts Giorgio Moroder, dubbed the father of disco, but he passes. He does, however, set them up with Keith Forsey. Forsey was a known songwriter and was needing to prove himself as a competent producer. He shows up to their first meeting wearing a sex t-shirt and leather pants. I have no idea if this was his style or if he was just wanting to fit in with the band right off the bat, but it works for Idol. James isn't a huge fan of Forsey, but Idol digs him, especially after he picks Dancing With Myself as the song to work on first. Originally, they want Steve New as the guitarist for this album and record some with him, but change their mind due to his narcotics abuse. Steve Jones of the Sex Pistols is also brought in to record some songs with the band. Idol is now beginning to find his own voice in songwriting, but did still write with Tony James on songs like Revenge, Oh Mother, and Stars Look Down. Throughout the entire recording, James does not get along with Keith Forsey, but Idol loves working with him. He feels that this album is the best sounding yet. The album Kiss Me Deadly is released in January of 1981. It contains Dancing With Myself, which only hits 60 in the British charts, and the album as a whole is a flop. Drug problems continue to rise within the band, causing more distancing. Idol considers the solo career more and more as he sees Tony James as being too uptight. The final nail in the coffin for Gen X is Chrysalis dropping the band, and Gen X breaks up in February. Idol takes a solo contract with Chrysalis and heads to the U.S., he breaks it off with Perry Lister, thinking they will reunite once he gets settled in the States, which they do for a time. From here, it turns from a story about Generation X to a story about Billy Idol, and that, dear listener and fellow punk rocker, I will leave to you. Fast forward about a decade and we have a single show reunion of the band. September 20th, 1993, they play a show on Billy Idol's No Religion Tour at the Asoria Theater in London. Nearly 25 years after that, Billy Joe Armstrong invites the band to reunite and play a show with Green Day in 2017, but they decline. And finally, on October 30th, 2018, Billy Idol, Tony James, Steve Jones, and Paul Cook play a show at the Roxy in Hollywood under the name Generation Sex. They play both Gen X songs and Sex Pistols songs, and tickets were given out by lottery. Alright, we did it. That is it for Generation X. It really surprises me when I talk about this band with people and they have no idea that Billy Idol had a band before he went solo. I've even seen their album in stores with a sticker that says, Billy Idol's first band, which strikes me as odd, but hey, whatever. 
If you are interested in Billy Idol's solo stuff, definitely read his autobiography, Dancing With Myself. It's a miracle that guy has lived as long as he has. He truly lived that rock and roll lifestyle and hard. Okay, I have to give a very special thank you to all you punk rockers out there. I've started to get some fan emails with suggestions, which is nice and will be taken into consideration for the future. I've also noticed some more five-star reviews, so thank you very much there. It really does help others find the show. If you know anyone who likes punk rock, band history, or Generation X, let them know about the show. Word of mouth is a great way to help the show out. Thank you again to Granddaddy Long Greg for making the show's logo. If you like that logo and want to help the show by sporting it, head on over to Tee Public to get some merch. I know I've gotten hoodies, shirts, pins, magnets, and face masks from them, and it's all good quality stuff. I'll leave the link to our page in the show notes. This is a one-man operation, so every little bit helps keep me going and keep the lights on over here. Now, if you need to get in touch with me, there are a few ways currently. I have a Twitter at Let's Talk Punk. That's Let's underscore Talk underscore Punk. There is also a Facebook page, or you can contact me via email at Let's Talk Punk Rock at gmail.com. That's Let's Talk Punk Rock at gmail.com. That would be the best place to contact me if you notice I got anything wrong in the episode, and if I did, please do let me know so I can make corrections. It's also the best place to share your punk rock stories with me. I love reading those, and once I have a good handful of them, I'd like to share some on the show. So if you've ever had a crazy experience in the punk world, let me hear about it. Alright, and on to our final part. Hints to our next episode. Our next band was also formed in London in 1976. A couple things that set them apart were their female lead singer and use of saxophone in the band. And finally, there's a documentary and book about the lead singer that was done largely by her daughter. Alright, that's it. I'll catch you on the flip side.